This is Beyond the Coats, The Life of a Physician, a podcast to share the wisdom of experienced physicians to inspire, educate, and enrich the lives of listeners. I'm Lily. And I'm Maya. We are fourth-year medical students. Oh, I just graduated. So a fourth-year student and a recent graduate of the Wright State University Boonshaft School of Medicine in Dayton, Ohio. The opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of the Wright State University Boonshaft School of Medicine or of any other organization or university. Please do not use this podcast for medical advice, but instead reach out to your doctor regarding your medical concerns. We're happy to have with us on the show tonight Dr. Patrick Jonas, a family physician in the Dayton community. He attended the Ohio State University College of Medicine and spent some time in academic medicine during his early career. He now enjoys teaching medical students as an associate professor in his office and at the Open Arms Health Clinic, a free clinic in Bellbrook, Ohio, where he serves as a medical director, among many of his other activities in and outside the realm of medicine. He also plays the roles of husband, father, and grandfather to his family. Dr. Jonas, thank you for being with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. It's always fun to interact with Bright State graduates and medical students. Now, Dr. Jonas, you are such a big part of healthcare in Dayton, and it's really hard to imagine you in a position other than that of a healthcare provider. When you were younger, what did you think about doing with your life? Always a good question. So younger, uh, I remember wanting to be a doctor because I loved going to my doctor. I loved the smell of the doctor's office. And maybe more importantly, I loved highlights for children. So when we did those little quizzes in the highlights book, something embedded in my brain, I want to be close to this activity. And so that's one of my secret questions, that I become a doctor so I could get highlights for children every month uh, or what. But anyway, so I love the doctor thing. And I was excited about that as early, well, in the ninth grade, that was my career focus by the ninth grade. Thanks. And looking over this CV that you sent us, which has quite a lot of accomplishments on it, it looked like at one point you attended um, the West Point Academy where you earned your bachelor's degree. Um, You attended U.S. Army Ranger School, Paratroop School, um, and eventually um, held flight and instructor pilot courses in Vietnam. So from that trajectory, how did you um, end up in medicine? What sparked your interest? Well, I still always wanted to be a doctor. And... I thought I could go to West Point and be a doctor, and there was a point when I wasn't sure about that, so I thought about quitting West Point so I could go to transfer to Miami University and become a redskin at that time and become a doctor. And I called my doctor, the guy whose office smelled so interesting, <laughs> said, Dr. Martin, blah, 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 and he said, you could always be a doctor. Don't leave West Point. Hmm. So one way or another, I didn't ended up leaving West Point and uh, and I said okay I'm going to be in the Army Corps of Engineers and during the time at West Point though I talked to a couple people about being a doctor in the Army and that was possible and so there was hope so I kept the hope alive took the uh, dreaded organic chemistry in my junior year at West Point and uh, all the people who had this hope of being a doctor took that course said how are we going to become doctors uh, we all then went through these other courses, Airborne Ranger, uh, Army Rotary Wing Aviator, Vietnam, et cetera, and kept the dream alive. And then uh, it was still there when I, when I got out of the Army, except for Ohio State, 
I had to take a uh, comparative anatomy, vertebrate anatomy kind of course. So I, I was in Manhattan, Kansas at the time, Fort Riley, Kansas. And I understand you're accepted, except you have to take the zoology course and blah, blah, blah. And it was crashing for a second, but I ran over to Kent. Kansas State University and found Herschel Geyer, this guy who took mutants, weird students who needed credit for something. And I took the zoology course with him. So I ended up with a shark in my freezer in my home and a cat that looked like it was trying to attack somebody and it was shot or something. It was like fully stretched out there. So we dissected these animals and we'd go over to see Dr. Geyer in regular intervals and show him what I dissected. That took care of my prereq for Ohio State. So I got into Ohio State and uh, in a three-year course. That was the other thing. Since I spent five years in the Army, I figured I wanted to do some catching up. <clears throat> and at the time, the government was interested in turning out at least one more extra year of doctors. So there were all kinds of government grants to make your medical school into three years, obviously. Government money doesn't go wasted on medical schools. They take it. So I had the three-year program at Ohio State, and I was in the independent study program. Another thing I had in the Army was thousands of 50-minute lectures about any number of things. It wasn't thousands, but it seemed like it. So I knew that I didn't want the lecture program at Ohio State. I was not going to sit in a lecture hall again, because all you do in the lectures is fall asleep, and your buddies try to keep you awake so you don't get the merits if you're at West Point, or you don't get thrown in the river if you're in ranger school. So there was, there was a lot of fun along the path. So it sounds like you had a lot of adventures leading up to medical school. So when you finally um, matriculated at Ohio State, you were in, in the independent study program. What was that, what was your medical school experience like? So it was in, sort of intense because I've been out of college for five years and everybody else as you know, it was a little bit over-focused, <laughs> a little, uh, were they geeky? I don't know. They already taken all the courses. So I'm taking biochemistry and there's somebody with a PhD in biochemistry or somebody that was an undergraduate major, anatomy. And I'd say, oh, I already did that in undergrad. This is so much fun to see this again. So it was a little bit extra for the old people like me. Um, but at the time, they had a lot of retreads at Ohio State because they, we had 264 people in each class. So there was room for everybody. We had a high school principal. Um, there were two of us who had been helicopter pilots in Vietnam. So every Friday at about 4 o'clock in the independent study program, I looked around and said, who's going to happy hour? Who wants to have a beer? Because that's what we did at the Army every Friday at 4 o'clock. And the helicopter pilots got to the officers club first and saved the table. So we had the best time at happy hour. <clears throat> but as you might expect, there weren't any medical students who wanted to go have a beer at four o'clock on Friday. And occasionally somebody might, but it was, uh, I was kind of getting culturally reoriented by that experience. I love the independent study program though, because you, you would study, study, study and study late at night and then come in and say, I'm, I'm ready for this next thing. And, and they would give you some, some uh, audiovisual materials. Well, actually they didn't have CDs, DVDs, VCRs. They had reel to reel recorders at the time. So we would get a reel and load it up ourselves, and look at a video of something 
and the video is something else. And then we would go, we didn't dissect bodies in the ISP. We looked at these videos and when we thought we knew from reading and looking at the videos, we had a graduate student that would query us in a pro section. The pro section, they did the dissecting, they had the part already ready for us. And we walked in and they were just kind of say, what's this, what's this, what's this, what's this? So it saved us uh, skin rashes like our colleagues in the lecture discussion program had from the formalin and the uh, smells that they didn't succumb to, but they could have succumbed to some of those smells. And I never felt really left out by not getting to dissect the cadaver. So that was part of the fun of the ISP. Nice. That sounds like a super unique medical school experience. How many other students were there in your class that were doing that independent study? That was like a third. There were 64 was the number in the ISP. There was something about the study rooms had like 16 people times four. So 64 could get in the ISP. And everybody wanted to be there and they loved it. It, it, was, it was like being in DPC now or something like that. Everybody loved the ISP, it was in the ISP. And it, it could sort of slide back and forth. So if somebody had some kind of big problem, they could sort of shift their time frame and uh, take more than three years to get through medical school. They could speed it up also. So if we were done with uh, all the modules that we had for the basic sciences, uh, whenever we were done and took that final big, um, it was like a, there were two professors and one student in this big questionnaire kind of thing, an oral, to get on the last day before we go into the rotations, we'd have the big oral. And then we, some people like me might go to happy hour to celebrate. <laughs> and then, uh, so I remember doing that one day and the next day I was on my first clinical rotation at Riverside Methodist Hospital on general medicine. Ah, wow. <laughs> that sounds like quite a journey. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and fast forward to your experience now as a physician. Um, so one of the great privileges of being a physician is we get to be with patients during some of the really tough moments in their lives. Um, and this allows us the honor of developing a great sense of empathy, um, which for some can be challenging to maintain over the long term. How do you maintain your sense of empathy as a physician? That's a good question. Um, so I see myself as like holding up mirrors. And, and I want to know, you know, when I hold up the mirror, for the patient, is that you? Is that really them? And sometimes it's not them, and they don't know who they are, or they are away from themselves. And I need to figure out how to connect them to them, and that requires certain kinds of responding. And I remember in that um, medical school, see the last day of my first rotation. Well, the first day I was assigned this patient who was a physician, and that physician was uh, he had had all kinds of heart attacks and things and was running out of heart and life. And he um, mentored me. So he kind of role modeled for me how people, how doctors help people. So he was helping me to, he says, okay, let's start the IV. Let's do this. So I'm starting an IV on him and taking care of him. Um, and he was just a decent person. He was also a bit driven. He had had a heart attack on the way to work one day just pulled over the side of the road, had the heart attack, kept going because he knew he had to work. <laughs> so he, 
there were some intense physicians along the way that you'll meet. He was one of them on the last day of that rotation. He died while I was holding him so they could get a stat uh, chest x-ray that was totally unnecessary. Um, it was just something something while the resident was out in the hallway trying to get the no code agreed to by his wife, who was also a physician. It was interesting. So we were a little bit behind the eight ball there, but that was the last event of my first rotation on the last day. And from that experience, I walked out the door to the next rotation the next day. Nobody said anything. There was no processing. And it's something that uh, I, I didn't think about until later when you get kind of flashbacks and say, whoa, I need to process that grief and that, that sense of loss and whatnot from that person. So when I was in um, residency, we had behavioral scientists assigned within family medicine residencies right from the start to help the doctors to sort of be human and to be able to process these kind of things. So it was a great experience at the uh, MS Hershey Medical Center where chocolate reigns uh, to get the opportunity to get more training in interpersonal skills and responding to people. <clears throat> and as a result of something that happened there, I um, worked on a resident teaching skills project uh, when I was a resident through the American Medical Association resident physician section, became the head of the work group on resident teaching skills. See, there's a sign right up there on my, in my office that says Educational Skills Resource Center. And that was the, the result of our project. The part of that uh, helped me to run into some people who trained people in empathy and interpersonal skills and wrote books in that. I worked with, um, with them for over 40 years one way or another now um, because it helped me to recruit my good friend uh, Larry Bauer to become the uh, faculty development coordinator in our Department of Family Medicine at Hershey. Uh, and we worked on all kinds of modules over the years to help with empathy, responding to feeling, responding to content, responding with meaning, helping people to identify meaning, and thousands and thousands and thousands of times I've iterated through those processes. You can never quite know the whole thing, but but training other people to do some of those kind of things helped me a whole lot. And understanding uh, how people access their own files through more recent training in uh, holistic health uh, has kind of kind of helped me to upgrade the empathy and to try to have, understand who people are, who are you, and where are you headed, and then to help. Um, like the students that we that I teach to uh, get the context sensitivity. This context is like everything. So who, what the patient's context is, is so fascinating. Uh, and it's made medicine so much fun to be context sensitive and process sensitive. Um, that that's how I sort of I developed some empathy and maybe expanded it, but I keep working on it. Because at three in the morning when you're an intern, Sometimes you might become somewhat insensitive because you're trying to get certain things done and then you feel bad and you wonder, hmm, was I a little abrupt there? Um, so you keep trying to tune things up and get better and better and better. That's why they call it practicing medicine because maybe we never quite fully get there, but it's a, it's a great journey. Yeah, it sounds like a really um, powerful and 
meaningful way to always keep the patient and the patient's story at the center of what you're doing and to always keep reminding yourself that that's why we're doing this. Um, that's really cool. Um, switching gears again a little bit, earlier you mentioned um, DPC. And I was wondering if you, could, if you could talk a little bit more about that, what DPC means to you and how you got involved in that. Right, so the direct primary care, and it's a business model, and I periodically have to remind myself too that DPC primary care is the business model and what, how I operationalize that in my practice is direct family medicine. So I try to keep making sure I'm doing family medicine, not primary care, which is maybe nobody's specialty, um, uh, to, sort of, to sort of remain sensitive to the definition of family medicine, my specialty, how much fun I can have. But um, looking at different ways to practice over the years and <clears throat> identifying these different business models and, and I taught practice management for 20 years or so to residents and medical students and practicing doctors. Um, and suddenly saw this model at the Family Medicine Education Consortium meeting in Baltimore, probably in 2011, and looked at it and said, oh my gosh, I think I can do that. And there's something about this that's very interesting because it allows us to do what we really want to do. And at the same time, there had been a lot of stress coming out of the so-called patient-centered medical home project. And people started to realize that was not delivering so it was more delivering like the payment center in medical home. So we had to go beyond that thing and find what, how can we really get to do our essence? And the essence can be delivered in the direct primary care business model through direct family medicine, direct internal medicine, direct pediatrics, whatever people might want to say they're really doing with their thing. Because it gives an opportunity for the doctor to have a smaller panel of patients and the patient to have a different different types of access. Of course, now everybody jumped on the bandwagon with telemedicine and so forth. That was part of DPC too, um, connecting with the patient in more ways and trying to personalize, but also the billing wasn't the curse like it is in regular practice. There's so many parameters about billing and coding to get the doctor dragged down that sometimes they can lose sight of the patient or what's best for the patient because they have so many quality initiatives to satisfy to even get paid. So as those things piled up and DPC came along as a model, it was obvious to me that that was the way to go. And also as somebody who's an independent and owned my own practice, I started to notice that there was no way to recruit a doctor to join an independent practice um, with the current business models. Join me and torture yourself with many quality initiatives and go home every night hating yourself so you can work for two hours on your EMR after supper. Well, that didn't sound like a very appealing kind of way to recruit somebody. So the direct primary care model though said, hey, would you like to actually be able to engage your patients, have a differential diagnosis that reflects your mutant brain and your ability to think about cool diseases and, and then be able to relate to the patient and connect over time to help them to be themselves and for you to learn the most, um, but also to connect as a human being with the patient. So the direct primary care model, direct family medicine that I do, afforded a way to do that. I started that in 2012, just after seeing that at that meeting, since I own my own practice, I said, okay, we're gonna do that, boom. Here's how we do it. 
and we started to offer that to people in July of 2012. And it, it got better and more and more fun, more and more interesting. That answer the question? Yes. Um, a quick follow up on that. You touched on it a little bit in your answer, but how has your involvement with DPC kind of changed your view or influenced your view of what it means to be a family physician? Well, using that model allows people to be a family physician. So our, our essence is um, pretty broad and sometimes shallow and sometimes deep. So we can sort of float across the, our, our scope of practice as we define it and connect to patients who are within that in better and better ways and use our mutant brain to get to think, need, and learn. Um, so it just operationalizes the essence of family medicine, my specialty. And I think it can do that also for internal medicine and, and general pediatrics. There's fun to be had for these folks who learn all this stuff and pass step one, step two, all those steps and, and all those hurdles, and then get to actually really do it instead of fake it and get shut down by some bony quality initiative or clicking until their fingers are bleeding but not getting to touch the patient. So I think it allows us to deliver our essence because of the um, fewer patients, deeper relationships um, that we have with them and the use of technology. Um, so we can, add COVID hits, we got the time to read about it and learn about it. Some other kind of thing happens, like I have a special interest in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, hypermobile folks. So I've had time to kind of get deeper into that, go to their national meeting, other kind of things. So uh, there's a lot of flexibility that DPC affords that de-stresses things. So the physician is not a subhuman trying to sell their soul for the patient. Them and the patients are both humans enjoying their humanity and our, our essence helps them to have a better humanity. That answer the question. Yeah. So you mentioned that um, Larry Bauer is one of the people that helped sort of introduce you to DPC through direct primary care. I'm kind of curious about maybe other friends or mentors in medicine um, that have influenced you along the way. Could you tell us about one of your mentors and how they influenced you? Well, I already told the story about the, the doctor who was willing to let me start IVs on him, even though he was like in a terminal state. Um, and shared, so he was uh, really living the Hippocratic Oath there. Um, and at uh, let's see, the Hershey Medical Center, Tom Lehman was the founding department chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and he was he was quite an interesting mentor because he was asked in about 1966 or so to start a Department of Family Medicine which was a specialty that didn't exist yet. In a medical school, the MS Hershey Medical Center at Hershey that wasn't built yet. Uh, so he's asked to start a department that doesn't exist in the medical school that doesn't exist and to develop a curriculum and a residency. And so he was a guy who could tolerate abstract concepts and uncertainty. So part of one thing he did for the residents, he would have a, a special session once a month 
that anybody could present any patient or bring a patient. Uh, the, the people that nobody could seem to figure out a way how to help, and Tom would connect with the person and identify what maybe diagnoses and therapeutic processes, because uh, he was just so good, he could, he could integrate everything. He just had these great skills. Uh, he had great stories also, like he delivered a baby of the bride at a wedding one time at the Hotel Hershey. She thought she just had a stomachache. And the person that he delivered uh, became his doctor for his last 15 years of his life as one of the faculty. Dennis Gingrich is one of the faculty at Hershey now, and he's one of the leaders in uh, family medicine and comes to the FMEC meetings. So there's great stories out of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Tom was, Tom was a good mentor, and uh, Tenny Williams was a great role model at Ohio State. Um, when I went to medical school there, he started a family medicine night clinic with the doctors in the community. Um, that was like when they first started the department. The department didn't really exist. It sort of had the potential, but it had space. And so he was a, a good leader, a good clinician. And another person, Robert Smith, became a faculty there. He was from uh, like Mississippi or somewhere. So he came with Dr. Uh, Klassen and Tom Houston and him. There were some people that came from afar. And he was the guy who taught me about the family. He said, hey, uh, I was precepting over there one half day a week when I practiced in the Granville Medical Center. And I told him I was frustrated because somebody wheeled their mother in for me to take care of her, but they didn't become a patient themselves. And I said, that's really strange. So then the person who's the decision maker is not my patient. Um, how, do we, how do we deal with that? And he said, let me tell you what I did. I took families only, my entire practice in um, one of those northern Ohio cities like Mentor or an M word. Um, and he had this whole system said, because we're family medicine and we deal in prevention of relationship, they couldn't become a patient until they came to his orientation meeting. Wow. <laughs> so they would sign up for the meeting. And at the meeting, he would say, this is what we do. This is how we work. Here's the practice. He'd show them a tour, the schedule, et cetera. Now, if you want to be a patient, please sign up. And there was a huge waiting list and people won't, they said, well, I'm sick now. Can't you see me now? He said, family medicine is not about acute episodic illness. It's about a relationship and chronic care. Um, so he like lived a dream. And I said, wow, that is cool. He told me that one day and actually went in the next day. Actually, I just, I'd left the Granville Medical Center because of a, there was a subtle dispute that we had. And uh, so I left there and started another practice as a solo. And so the day after Bob Smith told me about that over at Ohio State when I was precepting, I walked in and said, here's our new thing. And we started the next day, families only, which I did for 37 years. The only practice in the state wow. of Ohio since Bob had already stopped doing that as a faculty person. Um, and I was sad to say that I was the only practice in the state of Ohio who only took families as patients. So they had to sign up everybody in the house or we wouldn't take any of them. And it was wonderful. I started to learn more genomics, family systems, family structure and function, family life cycle. And I attended meetings uh, called the Family and Family Medicine, 
down at Amelia Island, Florida, which is not exactly suffering, um, with all these family geeks, these family fanatics, these crazy people who love the family thing, family therapists. Um, and so it was, it was so great to get it reaffirmed and reinforced. And then when the Human Genome Project came along, things like that, it became more and more exciting because families, they would tell on each other and you can learn things about them and it was kind of surprising. Um, so I had, I just had a lot of fun actually all along the way. Um, the fun started to get squeezed out with the, how medicine was changing though. And that's why DPC was so important to free us to practice medicine again so we could really connect with the patient and have that kind of fun. And the other, let's see, those are the mentors. Um, one other one was David Aspie. So David Aspie, EDD, uh, wrote a book called Kids Don't Learn From People They Don't Like. Well, when I was doing this uh, Educational Skills Resource Center for the AMA resident physician section, I was the president of the Pennsylvania Medical Society resident section, so I get to be presidents of things here and there <laughs> because I, I like processes. So in that role with the MARPS, um, the, our humanities professor that ran our Wednesday group every week in our residency, every, every Wednesday at lunch, we turned in our pagers and went into this, basically it was group therapy for residents, although it was called something different, the Wednesday group. And Al Bastian ran that. And Al heard about, I wanted to learn this, how to teach and how to do it better. And he says, hey, I got this article read the article and called the guy who wrote it, Dave Aspie, and he said, um, well, if you, if you want to, you can fly down here to Richmond, Kentucky, and I'll show you what we did. And the AMA RPS, I had a budget, so um, courtesy of the AMA, I flew down to Richmond, Kentucky, spent two days learning how to rate videotapes on interpersonal skills and educational skills. And it was, uh, it was just incredible. But Dave Aspie then uh, mentored me uh, he helped me connect up to Kharkov Associates in Amherst, Massachusetts. And that's the other part is the Larry Bauer story. And so suddenly we're needing a faculty development coordinator in the department for this first ever faculty development grant, one of the first in history, because family doctors knew they didn't know how to teach. All the other, all the other faculty in medical schools may not have known either, but they didn't know that they didn't. <laughs> so our specialist said, look, I'm sorry, we're new. We don't know how to teach. Let's do this. So Larry, um, they were looking for somebody to take that slot. Somebody from UD who was a PhD said he would take the slot. He would do it. The next day he called and said he couldn't do it. So I called these people in Massachusetts said, hey, blah, blah, blah. We have this thing. Can you help us out? The guy called me back the next day. Barry Cohen called and said, we got Larry Bauer down in Virginia in prisons. And so he was down there doing social work in prisons and it was about to explode and every once in a while you need to know you need to get out of something so um i called larry and said hey we got this thing and blah 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 and he said what's family medicine um and you've heard that you've heard him tell that story and then he ended up getting hired there um and so it was so exciting when larry was talking about fmec and the impact everything had, just thinking about my good fortune to have stumbled into a place where it could connect him with that position was, was very heartening and very satisfying. Those are the kind of things that happen with, with uh, paying attention. 
That's awesome. It's so wonderful. Oh, sorry. Did I interrupt you? No, no. Okay. It was just awesome to hear all of those stories and how they've impacted your path. Um, kind of stemming off of that, you have so many wonderful accomplishments and so many wonderful experiences in your career so far. Uh, what are you proudest of during your time as a physician thus far? Hmm. Proudest of, let's see. So, <clears throat> so I've studied the word pride. I'm not sure that I can align with it very well. <laughs> but, but I'm very pleased. Um, like the whole career, I'm pleased to have been able to use some skills that God gave me, that somehow I, I have to help people to be themselves. And it's like person by person by person by person. So it's a human alignment verification or alteration is probably what I'm most pleased with. Um, Cause I think I have learned things that help some people to align with themselves, with their values, goals and dreams. And that's, I guess what I am most pleased with. I think is when you look at the, so overall things I have a lot of bus tickets here and there and things I've done and worked on. I'm ecstatic about the Open Arms Health Clinic, <clears throat> the relationships that have, have evolved there, helping people, and then the Wright State Medical Student involvement has been uh, exciting, very satisfying. Uh, people like Lily and Grace and Bryce and Sophia and you and all these people that have related about those about that program uh, makes me excited about the future because the people all care and they know how to care for people uh, so it's fun to see that that kind of mentorship or organizational uh, skills or whatever to kind of say wow look at Lily White she can do everything so Let's make, let's make sure she knows that she can do something at Open Arms Health Clinic. And she went and took off with that. Um, so that's very, very satisfying and heartening to know like 52 students are involved in that program in this 12 month period. And each one of them gets a little piece of something that could be helpful to them like forever in their career. Uh, and I flashed back on the, an experience I had at Marana, Arizona as a medical student and a multidisciplinary team for a month with a nursing students, a pharmacy student, me at a National Service Corps site, uh, community health center kind of a thing in um, this little burg that now is a big town. But uh, these little things, are, you flash back because that was a team thing. We had a mobile unit and it just, it's kind of things I think of, okay, can we get a mobile unit here? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, just making connections is part of the fun. So I'm really proud, I guess, <laughs> but it helps some connections to happen uh, that have been helpful for people. Sort of stemming off of that question, um, as part of the beauty of being a doctor, we get to share in a lot of precious moments in our patients' lives. Um, and you've had a long and very fruitful career. And so I realize you may have a lot of answers to this question. But what are, would you tell us a story of one of the most meaningful things you've experienced as a physician? Uh, <laughs> there must be some sad ones. <laughs> so, hmm. 
<laughs> there's been um, a lot of people died, and a lot of people were born, and <laughs> so we had some some great times, like at you know end of life kind of things. I've been very satisfied with. Um, I remember taking care of an atheist who didn't believe in anything and was listening to her, talking to her uh, dying of lymphoma in the Lickingmore Hospital like 40 years ago or so. And so we're talking to her and she said something about the Cincinnati Reds. We talked about Cincinnati Reds. And so she believed in the Cincinnati Reds. And so, so it finally came, she was at a point where she was going to be dying and her son was in the room and so forth. And poof, there was a Cincinnati Reds on the TV. And I said, okay, we're aligned <laughs> with the higher beliefs here. And helping somebody, you know, she's dying with a value of hers present yeah. at that moment. So there's these little, these little moments like that. And so, wow, this is kind of meaningful alignment. Um, very satisfying. I had a couple. I guess there's a lot of death stories that are not that inspiring to medical students when you hear the death things. Um, the let's see. Good news. Nobody ever named a baby after me. <laughs> you look at these. Say, okay, what never happened? Okay, that never happened. Get a lot of little thank you notes along the way. I remember being in a, I was in an elevator. I went back to visit somebody at Lincoln Memorial after I was not there. I was on the faculty at Ohio State. And my second gig. And I'm in this elevator and this woman says, you may not remember me, but you saved my life. And I remembered her entire story as soon as I saw her. Um, and said, so, what do you mean? He said, you know, he was beating me and you told me that he could kill me if I didn't leave and I left. And it's the best thing I ever did. Um, yeah. And I'm still alive. And he didn't kill me. Uh, so it's so, okay. That's very satisfying. The thank yous. So the thank yous are very satisfying. And they stick with you. Um, so if we get, uh, I'm thinking going through ages of people. So we get babies and people. So families are often very thankful and they talk about uh, I had at least three people who had a baby because I knew something about uh, B vitamins and that was very satisfying to have somebody frustrated said gee I don't know what I'm going to do I wanted to have a second baby and I've had two miscarriages I'm hurting all over what can I do and I said how about methyl B12 and methylfolate this lady told me I could tell her story and so 10 months later, the woman comes in with her, with her new baby that was getting to take care of. Oh, wow. And folate. Um, so those things are very satisfying when you look at like, a, like some simple things that you all learn in the first year of medical school that sort of bring them into the office encounter at, at the right time and they can have an outcome like that. Uh, very satisfying. A lot of patient things. Um, Let's see, Denison football team. I was the, uh, I ran the campus health center and I was the head team physician for Denison University. Same time I was practicing in Granville for like 11 years. I practiced there. Four years at Ohio State, I was still the team doctor at Denison. 
so we had some very satisfying things with college students and some intense things. Um, oh, well, and like uh, somebody had salmonella in their cecum and it looked like appendicitis. In those days, we go to the hospital and be the assistant on the surgery. And they say, wow, it's not like acute appendicitis of the classical type. We cultured out with salmonella, had to go to the beta house where it turned out they passed out their silverware one night a week and they say it with their hands and actually didn't have any toilet paper in the toilets on the first floor. So there was these subtle, these kind of satisfied, we fixed it. <laughs> it's satisfying to prevent things, but you never quite know. So those, those most exciting moments, there's probably been a whole bunch of them, depending on what I'm, what I'm thinking at the time for a particular disease state. I think the Ehlers-Danlos, um, people are just ecstatic to get a diagnosis. And that's fascinating. And I'm still doing some of those, like every two months at least, there's somebody comes by and they have this hypermobility thing. And they're very pleased to know that there's a label for it and they can do something, sort of do something about it. I don't know if I actually answered the question there. <laughs> yeah, that was really powerful. So um, in the remainder of the time we have, we would we love to ask um, each, of the, each of the guests on our show this question. Um, so for the medical students listening, maybe now, maybe in the future, what wisdom would you like to pass on to them? And what would you like them to know? Well, I like, I like the mirror thing. So learn how to hold up the mirror so the patient you can't see so, so you can help the patient clarify who it is and what what it's about and how you can sort of connect your medical expertise to that but also to have the two-sided mirror so you got to look at your side of it and know yourself so that it's critical to know yourself and know your own values goals and dreams and to keep realigning them just like you help the patients realign with theirs um, but if you're too misaligned with yours you can't help the patients that much and we always have these concerns about physicians getting too disconnected because uh, people have these mutant brains and just incredibly smart people with these paths going and going and going and they may sort of accidentally devalue themselves and that was one of the concerns i had about the patient-centered thing um, we're humans we, we matter they matter we connect as human beings and we can sort of both be whole if we do that kind of thing so so get a two-sided mirror and stay whole so you can help your patients to be whole. I love that. <laughs> um, one of the ways we like to end the show with physicians we've worked with is by turning the tables. So Maya and I would now like to take a few moments to share how you've positively impacted us during medical school. So um, working with you at Open Arms over the past year so far has been really special. Um, you have such a wealth of knowledge and I really appreciate your passion just of wanting to share that knowledge with other people, especially with the medical students. Um, a really meaningful moment for me, actually, one of the meaningful moments of my third year was our um, clinic orientation and I was presenting a patient to you. And at that time I was, um, I had a lot of imposter syndrome going on and I just didn't feel great about presenting, discussing findings. And you gave such wonderful feedback and it was really motivational for me and it was really what I needed to hear and just hearing that was okay it was really powerful it really impacted me so thank you thank you 
So I'd like to share a brief patient experience from our awesome rotation we got to have last summer together that left a lasting positive impression on me. Um, this was a younger, otherwise healthy patient presenting with a cold. However, as the patient and I were discussing some of the possible supportive care options, I couldn't quite clarify why the patient seemed disinterested in the plan that we were talking about. So as I left the room, I continued to feel this sense of a missing piece. I couldn't understand why an otherwise healthy young patient would come to the doctor and then not be interested in talking about supportive care options. The only other thing my early fourth year medical student mind thought that there were to offer for an upper respiratory infection. So reluctantly, I presented her to you <laughs> knowing um, that something was missing. As per our routine, you listened patiently and we went into the room um, together. In a matter of minutes, you created an environment that allowed the patient to feel comfortable and that led to the patient sharing the worry of being ill and plans that the patient had been looking forward to, visiting a, fam a vulnerable family member um, and worrying about um, exposing that member in the coming days to their illness. It was that missing piece, that deeper reason for the appointment that I'm not even sure that the patient was fully cognizant of, given it was never directly pronounced by the patient, but rather elicited by you during that visit. In that moment, I just had such odd, this skill you had of clarifying a patient's values and tying it so beautifully to their care plan and being able to fathom the patient's need before even the patient was fully aware of it themselves. Um, you've obviously spent years honing this way of caring for patients from a human-centered perspective, um, as you mentioned earlier, and it's definitely one of the biggest ways you've influenced me and my own training. So Dr. Jonas, we'd like to thank you for sharing part of your journey with us today. I've been wanting to ask you some of these questions and hear some of these answers for a few years now, and I'm grateful you allowed us the opportunity to interview you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. This concludes this season's final episode of Beyond the Coat. Lily and I would like to thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed these podcasts as much as we have. Yes, a definite highlight of fourth year. Our next season will be produced by two new co-hosts, Charu, a third year, and Maya, a fourth year at the Boonchop School of Medicine. Stay tuned for their upcoming season two episodes soon. Thank you for listening. This has been Beyond the Coat, Life of a Physician.